This morning's reading comes from Matthew 7, uh, 24 through 29. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teachings. And he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I'll bet you know what that building is. Very recognizable. The Tower of Pisa, usually it's called the what tower? The Leaning Tower of Pisa. The... uh, that baby is over 180 feet tall. That's really tall. Um, I'm sure that's taller than our elevator by a significant bit. Um, and that thing has been leaning since the 1100s. <laughs> it's been leaning for a, almost a thousand years. In fact, it's been leaning for longer than it's been built. It started leaning when they were building the second story of that thing. And it sat there with just two stories all tilted, just slightly, not that much, to the side. Sixty-some years it sat, and then somebody decided, well, it's steady enough. Uh, And if you look closely, you can't really see it there, but the the builder who started after that tried to compensate a little bit and kind of curve that thing back up into the lean a little bit. And it stood there for a long, long time. Um, in fact, it, but it, can, it continued to lean more and more. In fact, it would have fallen over by now in the 1990s. Before that, they'd actually uh, abandoned some buildings that were off this way from it because they knew it was going to fall. In the 90s, engineers uh, sort of, they straightened it up a little bit and, and made it to where it wouldn't fall, but it would still lean. Guess what the, pr- the original problem was? with that tower. It had a foundation problem. First, it was built on, in a bad spot for, uh, for a tower, for, you know, for a structure. It's kind of marshy. But even more than that, this is kind of funny to me, um, the, the materials were subpar. And then get this, 180-foot tower in marshy soil Apparently, the foundation, the original foundation, was, is less than 10 feet deep. That's crazy to me. I'm no engineer or architect. But uh, Lonnie and Denny Kay and Denny Kuhneman, excuse me, and Denny Harms, we put the sign out here a few years ago, and they made us put a five-foot foundation under that sign, and it's concrete and rebar. For this thing to have less than 10 feet for a 180-foot tower is, uh, I don't know, kind of funny to me, actually. A foundation problem is a really big problem. And not just in buildings, just in life. We, we want to feel 
like our foundation is solid. It's why like running in sand or mud is a lot harder than running on something solid. It's a foundation problem. If you've ever tried to stand on something that's floating in water, it's not easy because it's a foundation problem. And in our lives, we just want to feel like our foundation isn't moving. One reason why if we went around and talked about the most anxiety-filled periods of our lives, why they are what they are, here's what we would find. The things that, for better or for worse, are a big part of our foundation, when those face danger or change, our anxiety really spikes because it feels like a foundation shift. When we have changes in our family, our family's health, or our careers, or our financial situation, or things like this, the reason our anxiety spikes is because it makes my life feel unsteady at a foundational level. And do you know that one reason many people, like, just like us, just regular folks, why we hesitate to sort of dive into this following Jesus thing, why we hesitate to say, you know what, I, you know, I'm going to make a decision to follow Jesus. Like, not just go to church, not just kind of say some prayers. I'm, I'm going to be obedient to the teachings. That's what I want out of my life. One reason why we hesitate to do that is because it's a foundation shift. It is... It takes the things that we have made the foundation of our lives. Our finances, our career, our family, acceptance of other people, entertainment, whatever it is that has made up the foundation of our life. When we decide to follow Jesus, Jesus says, okay, now I want to be the boss of that. Now I'm going to tell you what to do with that. That's why being obedient to Jesus feels sometimes, a lot of times, it feels like the risky play. Doesn't it? Like, oh, I know what Jesus would have me do this, but this would feel a lot safer to me. Have you ever, you ever felt that? Have you ever felt like obedience to Jesus is the thing that seems scary? Or am I the only one? This passage is Jesus' way of telling us that's not true. This very famous passage, the this, this story of two builders building two houses on different foundations, is where Jesus says, following me can make your life feel founded, solid. I want to take a look at what Jesus says this morning and then answer this question. How can that be true when in my experience, following Jesus is scarier? than not following Jesus. It's solid. You know the story. It's really easy to understand. If you've got your Bible open, you may want to leave it open. We're not going to go verse by verse through that. In Matthew chapter 7, we're at the the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We have studied the whole thing. We started a long time ago. Um, And the conclusion has been in three parts, where Jesus has been giving us a series of twos. First, he said there's only one narrow gate that leads to eternal life. And there's a very narrow, 
height uh, to the point of discomfort. There's a narrow path that leads to that gate. Few find it. Most people are on an easier, wider path that leads to a gate that goes to destruction. And the choice was obvious. Which do you choose? Do you want to follow me on the narrow path? Or do you want to be with everybody else on the wide path? And if that's the case, if there's only one good path, last week Jesus said, if there's only one good path, be careful who you follow, whose teaching you listen to. Because trying to get good teaching, if it takes you off of that narrow path, it's not good teaching. It's not nourishing. And now to today, because Jesus is smart, and he knows that that path is difficult, that he wants us to follow. He wants us to know, I know it seems like it's going to be scary to follow me on that path, and sometimes it will be, but it's solid. Following me, Jesus says, is solid. First thing I want us to look at from this parable. I just want to look through there and pick out what is the same. You have two builders building two houses. Um, in that whole little passage, what are the things that are the same in the two situations? There's three main similarities. I think we're supposed to picture the house the houses and the guys building them is more or less similar. That's a given in first century Palestine. Normal person had a house that was pretty much like everybody else's house. So that the house they build looks the same. The second thing that is the similar in that story is the weather event that happens to each house is the same thing. Same rain, same winds, same flood. That's really important to catch. I'll tell you why in a little bit. And the third similarity isn't really in the parable. It's outside of the parables. The people Jesus is talking about by describing him with this parable. He says the wise man, like the guy, it's like a guy, can be compared to a guy who builds his house on rock. The foolish man is like somebody who builds their house on sand. And Jesus says, both of those people hear the words of Jesus. You look in verse 24. The wise builder hears these words of mine. Verse 26. The foolish builder is like someone who hears these words of mine. So whatever the difference between wise and foolish is, hearing about Jesus, knowing stuff about Jesus, reading stuff about Jesus, does not make someone wise as far as this parable is concerned. So those are the similarities. Same kind of house, guy building the same kind of house. Um, the wise person and the foolish person build something that looks the same. And they both go through the same kind of storm. And Jesus said, I'm talking about two different kinds of people who both hear my words. Those are the similarities. What's different? What are the differences in, in the two situations in the, in the parable. Well, the re- results are obviously different. The first guy's house, after the, the, the clouds part and the sun comes out, his house is still there. It still stands. The second guy, the foolish builder, his house gets completely destroyed. Obviously, that's the main difference. Now, in the parable about the houses, what makes the difference so that one house stands and one house falls. 
the foundation. Okay? The foundation makes the difference in, what, in whether or not the house falls. Wise man, good foundation, solid, rock, foolish man, bad foundation, sandy. His house is destroyed. Now, outside of the parable in real life, who is the person with the good foundation according to this passage? Who is the wise person in this passage? And how is he different from the foolish person? Foolish person in this passage. What's the foundation in this passage? The foundation isn't Jesus. It isn't the Bible. It's obedience to Jesus. It's obedience to his teachings found in the Bible. That's the point of the parable. Some questions then. Is the wise person the kind of person who can figure out how to organize and build his life in a way that will keep storms from happening? Does the wise person build his house in an area of the country that gets better weather? No. Here's something Jesus wants us to know from this parable. The storms are coming. Wherever you build, however you build. The idea that Jesus taught a faith system that would keep bad stuff from happening to us if we believed hard enough and said the right prayers is just not at all what Jesus taught. Because he said the same storm is coming. What were you, what, but where you build, how you build, on what foundation you build will determine whether you're destroyed by that storm or whether when the skies clear and the sun comes out, will you be standing? Obedience doesn't keep all the storms away. But it keeps us standing through them. That's the point of this parable. The point of the parable is this. Jesus has just been teaching the most famous sermon that was ever taught. And he says, hearing my words, considering them, believing them, and deciding I'm going to obey them. Obeying the teachings of Jesus leads to security, solid footing in life. It makes our feet feel secure. Obedience is the foundation. I'm belaboring this point. Because naturally, sort of in our normal selves, ordinarily, if I asked you what kind of things... When we came in here today and you didn't know the passage, and I said, hey, will you write down two or three things that you think might ruin your life? None of us would write down... Uh, few of us would write down, if I'm not obedient to the teachings of Jesus, that's what will be my biggest problem. We would write down storms. We would write down stuff that might happen. And the point of what Jesus says is you want your life to feel solid. You want to still be standing when the storm gets through. Obey me. The storms are coming. Whether we obey or not, or we can obey our way out of all storms. 
But hearing Jesus' teaching, believing them and obeying them are like building a life on granite. Now, how can that be true? (laughs) How can that be true? Because like I said in the introduction, following Jesus sometimes feels really scary and shaky and feels like the risky play. So how can that be true? I think there are two ways to understand this, this idea that obeying Jesus makes my life solid, builds something that will last. Both of them are biblical. Both of them are fine. You can adopt whichever one you want, or you can decide that maybe Jesus was, was teaching both. First, I think we can understand this. I'm going to say eschatologically, only because I wanted to use a big word and sound smart. Eschatology is a study of the end times, right? So one idea, the Bible's really clear that all saved, redeemed, covered by the blood of the Lamb, whatever you want to call us, all Christians someday are going to stand before Jesus and be judged, not to determine whether or not we get into heaven. That was secured the moment we first believed. Amen? But Paul said, it's the point of 2 Corinthians 5, it's why I put a 2 Corinthians verse on the screen. Paul said we're going to stand before Jesus and have our works, our actions, our lives judged. And every obedient thing, everything we did for his name and his glory and his renown and other people in his name, that stuff is going to be found to have eternal value. And everything else that we did that was, uh, this translation says evil, but it doesn't have to be evil. It can just be just like normal. I, a few weeks ago, I used a, an example. We bought a furnace for our house. Okay? We don't get, we're not going to get any eternal reward for that action. Right? It's just, I, I praise God. I'm glad we have it. It was warmer this morning than if we didn't have it. Um, but that's just going to be something that is just earthly and is just going to be washed away at Rachel and I separate our judgment. So, If Jesus is talking about this, here's what this parable would mean. Every time in your life you are obedient to me, it's like you are putting one more brick, one more block, one more board onto a house that when the flood of my judgment comes, it will withstand that judgment and last for eternity. And everything you do that's just temporary and earthly will have been like you spend all that time on a sandcastle and when my judgment comes, it's just going to wash all that away and that way you're going to get nothing of eternal value out of that. That's absolutely biblical. It's the point of 2 Corinthians 5, at least part of that chapter. Um, and I suppose if that's what you want to believe that Jesus was talking about, you can be done and you can go ahead on out and eat lunch. Okay? Did he, did he really just leave? Okay. All right. That was well-timed. It's like, it's like, all right, let's eat. Amen. <laughs> Dylan. Anyway, uh, that was funny. He is never coming back to church here. I think Jesus was teaching a different point. I really can't prove this either. Okay. But I think Jesus was telling his audience, I don't think his original audience that day would have thought about the judgment seat of Christ, for sure, that specifically. Um, I think they were hearing him say, if you want your life to feel solid today, obey me, follow me. And that's the scary part. 
how can obeying Jesus, even though it feels really scary, make our life feel solid? That's what I just want to spend the rest of our time uh, sort of answering this morning. I think we have to start here. This firm foundation, this rock-solid footing that won't change and won't shift, if I want my life to feel like that, I have to start with having desires that are obedient to Christ. Clear back toward toward the beginning of our study of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, The blessed person is someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that's the person who's going to be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If I want my life to feel solid, to feel like it's going to last, I have to start with having desires that match Jesus's. Now listen, my behavior is not always going to match that desire. I boy, I wish it would. Someday it will, but not on this earth in its present state. If we're honest, normally and naturally, that's not what our desires are for. Righteousness, his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Normally, we hunger and thirst for things like recognition, success, Money, acceptance from other people, etc., etc., etc. Here's why following Jesus feels so risky. Pick out any of those things that are that are a main hunger in my life. If I'm going to be obe- if I'm obedient to Jesus long enough, He will show me that He's the boss of that thing, <laughs> and He will ask me to do things with those things that seem counterproductive to building those things. Does that make sense? If, let's say, acceptance from other people is one thing that I've built as a foundation of my life. I want to be accepted from other people. If I'm following Jesus, eventually there'll be a time where Jesus says, I know that person that you want to love you, they want you to do X. I'm going to ask you to do Y. And that's when I come to that crossroads and go, oh, I can't, I don't know if I can do this. Jesus, if I do what you want, they're not going to accept me. And Jesus goes, uh huh. <laughs> that's what feels so risky. What feels risky about following Jesus is when my desires, my real hunger and thirst level desires, are for things that are different than like his kingdom and his righteousness. Back when we talked about that verse, we said it this way. Anytime we put our desires on something we can lose, that's when our anxiety goes up, right? Because we know no matter what I build my life around, if it's not Jesus Christ, his kingdom and his righteousness, I can lose it. I can. And what happens when I hunger and thirst after my career, money, uh, acceptance from other people, you name it, whatever it is, 
It is like building a sand castle or a house on sand. And I will use, when that's my main hunger and thirst, I'll use anything to protect that from the storm because I know in my heart a storm of life can wipe that thing away. And I'll be willing to use disobedience to Jesus to protect it if it's, if it's foundational to me. Now compare that to this. If the desire of my heart, if my hunger and thirst is to obey Jesus Christ, what can happen to me that can take that opportunity away? Think about this. What storm of life can wash away my ability to do what is right and to honor Christ with my life? Like there, there aren't any of those. You know people who have sort of uh, you know, lost the farm financially and been ruined emotionally, spiritually, right? But don't you know people who have been ruined financially and have a wonderful testimony still? Do you know people who have gotten a bad diagnosis and kind of went down that, that rabbit hole of how could God do this? If God's in control and he loves and he let this happen to me, then I don't want any part of that guy. That happens. And they're ruined emotionally. They're ruined spiritually. But do you know people who have gotten a similar diagnosis and maybe they just even died well? Yes. The difference is foundation. If my foundation is my health, my beauty, my money, my career, the way I'm accepted by other people, Jesus said, a storm can wash that away and you know it. The flood's coming. Jesus says, you make my kingdom and my righteousness your desire and there's nothing that can touch that. Now, does that mean the storms won't come? No, they will. Does that mean it won't hurt? No, it will. Does that mean it won't be scary? No, it will. But somewhere in your heart you can know this, that storm can't get me where I live. It is safe in here. It's solid in here. And I know whether in this world or the next, those clouds are going to part. The sun's going to come out. And what Jesus Christ has built in me will be standing. And that is a difference in foundation that starts at the level of my desires. As we pursue proper desires... That's where we find Christ and his righteousness is the only desires the storms of life can't take away. They're they're always in our grasp. I can always do what's right. I can always follow Jesus. And it's the only way I really can get what I truly desire. That's what makes life following Jesus, feel solid. It's not because he's going to keep me healthy and wealthy and famous with a beautiful, long, flowing head of hair. 
for example. But once I have the desires right, then I can start building on those. Whatever I build from those right desires will stand. My relationship uh, to my wife will start at the foundation level, to my children, to my friends. If I'm building those relationships because I want something out of those people, I want to feel accepted, I want to be popular, I want to get elected, I want to whatever it is, all that stuff can be washed away. If I'm investing in those relationships, following Jesus while I do it, how much more solid will those be? They will begin to stand. Those people will be with me when the storm comes instead of, well, you know, you have a lot less friends when you have a lot less money, right? You have a lot less friends when you're the one um, being attacked. You have a lot less friends when, not if, not if they're founded on the right foundation. Let's put some scenarios to this. Jesus says, you want life to feel solid? Obey me. Desire what I desire and obey me. So let's say... Uh, you are attacked at work, or you are, you know, lied about at work. I would never tell you that if you're a Christian, that won't even hurt. That's silly. Depending on who it is or what the situation is, that might be very painful. Now, if career success is what you have built your life around, okay, if that's your foundation, it may affect your ability to be obedient to Jesus. Because that's when you're in a situation and you go, Jesus, I know what you said in the Sermon on the Mount is I'm supposed to love this enemy and pray for them. I'm supposed to turn the other cheek, which means I can't retaliate. I also can't run away. I can't see them as an enemy. You've said that. But Lord, if I do that, you know, that might hurt my my position professionally. So what I think is a wiser course of action is I need other people to know what a jerk this person is. I got to jump into that arena with them. If my desires following Jesus, they can't get at me there. Right? As he gives and takes away. Well, you know what? I don't know why, Lord, you wanted me to lose my job and it really hurts that I did. But you will walk through with me through this. And I can be obedient because that's my foundation. Being obedient in my desires, focusing on wanting what he says I should want. That's the only way I have any chance of doing the rest of the stuff he teaches. Getting rid of anger, turning the other cheek, praying for enemies. Um doing the eye surgery sort of judgment, if you're here for that sermon, which means I'm not just a critical nature where I want everybody to know how smart I am by pointing out everything that's wrong. I see what's wrong, and I want to I help the person that has something wrong. The only way I can pull that off is not by my willpower. It's by my desires being set on obedience and righteousness. And then as I build on those desires, the storms of life will actually 
strengthen what he's building through me. Because it'll feel more stable. Now there's an old uh, nautical saying, a calm sea does not produce a skilled sailor. A calm life doesn't produce a mature Christian. Right? Avoiding. I know we feel like we can build this life that I can count, account for every contingency. It's just not true. It's the illusion of control. The hard part, though, somewhere inside of us, we know this is a loss of control. Saying, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. It is a loss of control, but listen, it is giving up my control and handing it over to someone who's solid. Following Jesus can be scary. It, can, it is a loss of control. That's why it feels like it. But it comes with trusting that I'm handing over to control, control to someone who's solid. I can make my decisions based on what you would say I should do, regardless of the outcomes and consequences. Because you are solid. Rock, un, rock steady, unshakable, solid. Does that make sense? I love Matthew's conclusion to the Sermon on the Sermon on the Mount's over. The end. The curtain falls. The crowd goes wild. Literally. 28 and 29. Sermon on the Mount's over. And we read this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not the way their teachers of the law taught. Teachers in, in their day, in Jesus' day, they said, you know, this is right, this is wrong, and they would give a list of human authors that, that agreed with them for their authority. Jesus said, let me tell you, this is right, and this is wrong because I say so. It's the way he taught. And when Jesus got done, people were flabbergasted. If I was, if I was you know, the DMV, the dumb Maxwell version of the New Testament would have the word flabbergasted, because that's what they were. Except Lysanta is the, is the Greek, and that's what it means. Amazed to the point of being overwhelmed just at hearing him teach. Can you? I've always thought, man, if I could just go back and hear Jesus preach, I would love that. They were amazed. They were astounded. I don't know if it was a standing ovation or what they even did. And isn't that a great response? Listen, is that the response? to Jesus' teachings that he wants, that he desires. What is the response Jesus wants from his teaching? What does he want? How does he want us to respond? He just told us. Obedience. Jesus didn't preach this sermon so that people would go, wow, that was a great sermon. I was incredibly entertained. What time's kickoff? Right? He's not looking for people who are amazed and entertained and think he's awesome at speaking. He wants people to obey. That day, many, all were amazed. But Jesus already told us, few will obey. Many were amazed. Few would obey. Now I want to put, hold one 
more scenario up to this uh, this idea that obedience is what brings a solid house that'll stand through the storms. One more uh, example to see if what this said was true. It's the worst storm I think any human being ever walked through, and it was Jesus when he walked through the cross. It's what we celebrate when we come to this table and to communion. Think about this with me. Did Jesus have the right kind of desires? Did he have godly desires? Did he desire righteousness? Did he desire his own kingdom be built? Did he desire his Father's will? Yes. He had the right kind of desires. So then, he could choose to follow a very narrow path, a path that was narrow to the point of discomfort. Was he willing to do that? Yes. And his path, a path that would lead to eternal life, not for him, for us, led him all the way to a cross. And there was a storm. He was looking down the barrel of the worst storm imaginable. And did he say, oh, because because I'm righteous and because I'm obedient, this isn't going to hurt. Don't worry about me, God. No, what did he say in the garden? said oh father if there's any way if there's any other way of obedience that we can possibly walk I want to do that but not on my will yours and for him that narrow path ended on a tree nails in his hands and his feet crying out that Jesus was. Thank you for letting us see his desire for a kingdom of his own. Thank you for the example of difficult obedience. And thank you for the promise that that we know from the resurrection the promise that the house will stand when the storm subsides. But God, we are not so good at the obedience thing. We build sandcastles and try to protect them. We, we build sandcastles and ask you to keep the rain away. Then we get mad at you when the storm you promise comes and washes away what we never should have been building to begin with. 
Lord Jesus, you told us today you're looking for people who will be obedient. Who will hear your teaching, consider it, believe it, and obey. And many of us have decided to follow you. We just, we just sort of get in the way desires and our selfishness so i pray god today that you would work in us to help us desire your righteousness more and more and more to build what would last and now in the rest of our time together we just want to remember how you did it best how you were obedient to death even death on a cross and that by our faith in what you did you will bring us to the house which will never end. We love you, God. I just pray as the the bread comes around that you would help us remember your obedience and, and think of ours. In Jesus' name.
Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. It says the blood of bulls and goats isn't sufficient for that forgiveness. So mankind was stuck. So God sent the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world by shedding the blood, the blood of a new covenant, sufficient for the forgiveness of sin. And he asks us as often as we do this to remember him. God, I am so thankful that you ordained to have uh, one of your clearest statements about obedience and your desire that we follow you in obedience to be on the same Sunday that we remember you've saved us from our inability to be obedient. Somewhere in the middle of that, Lord, you have called us to obedience, empower us to have right desires, obedient desires that will bring obedient behaviors and keep forgiving us where we fail. And we know that you will. Thank you for our time in your word and around your table. In Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.